Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen continues her eight-part series of four interviews exploring the roots and history of attachment theory. In her next two episodes, Karen welcomes Dr. Howard Steele back to the show for part one of their two-part conversation on John Bowlby's work in child development and attachment theory. Part two will be released on Tuesday, June 8th. Hello everyone, it is great to have you here for the Attachment Theory in Action podcast, our special series on the history of attachment theory. This is Karen Buckwalter joining you from Chadak as your host. And today we are going to be speaking with Dr. Howard Steele about the life and work of John Bowlby. Of course, no podcast series of (laughs) the history of attachment theory would be complete if you didn't have somebody speaking about John Bowlby. So as I thought about this and who might be able to speak with him, I immediately thought of doctors Howard and Miriam Steele um, because they actually knew him personally, worked down the office from him. Yep, you you heard me right. Uh, Worked down the office from him at London, 1986 to 1990. And so just a little bit about Howard Steele, uh, in addition to him talking to us about his relationship today with John Bowlby, he is a professor of psychology, as well as the director of graduate studies at the New School for Social Research. And he also co-directs the Center for Attachment Research with his wife, Dr. Miriam Steele, which is also part of the New School in New York City. He has a focus on attachment theory and research, intergenerational patterns of attachment, mourning in response to trauma and loss, and attachment-based interventions to prevent child maltreatment and promote security organized attachments. He's also the editor of Attachment and Human Development and has been the president of the Society for Emotion and Attachment Studies. I've personally learned so much from the Steels and their amazing research and contributions clinically as well to the field of attachment studies. And so it is an honor to have uh, Dr. Howard Steele here again on the podcast. So he will be coming right up. Well, hello, Dr. Steele. It's so good to have you here on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast again. Thank you so much for having me, Karen. Yeah, well, I'm just delighted uh, as we're looking at this series of the history of attachment theory to have the opportunity to talk with you about John Bowlby, his work, and even incredibly your personal relationship with him. So thank you for for being here for this. Uh, Happy to uh, speak with you. And uh, certainly uh, it's relevant for people to know that though I speak with a um, Canadian-American accent, I was born in Vancouver, Canada, 
I've lived in the United States now since 2004, but for a big chunk of my adult life between 1986 and 2004, I was living in London, England, and it was in the late 80s that I had the opportunity to meet John Bowlby. Yes, yes. So, so tell us a little bit about that. You know what what that was like during that time, and. Um, what some of your relationship was like. And then I do want to get into some important things that you've written about in terms of his contributions um, to sure. this work. Well, uh, I arrived in London in 1986 with my wife and colleague, uh, Miriam Steele, and we're, we're still together in our 37th year of marriage. And, oh, so wonderful. <laughs> and um, we decided to do a prospective longitudinal study, that is to recruit a sample, a group of families and follow them over time going forward. And we recruited pregnant women expecting their first child and their partners, we went to a teaching hospital in London. Some people might know of University College Hospital in London, the center of the city. And we went to um, um, what they call antenatal, prenatal classes. And we said, we are interested in this new relationship that you and your partner are embarking on. We're a couple of PhD students from Canada, and we would like to interview you about your childhood experiences and then to observe you with your infant, with your baby at one year of age. That was our initial aim to administer the adult attachment interview, yes. which has been around now for, well, since 1985, uh, 15 and 21 is 36 years. There's been um, thousands of studies um, involving that interview, but we were one of the first to administer the interview to pregnant women and their partners. And then we showed that that interview predicted the quality of the infant's attachment to mother and to father, attachment at one year of age is a relationship-specific construct. That is, a child at one year of age has an attachment to the caregivers in their life. Typically, mother, father, maybe adoptive mother or father, maybe grandmother, maybe grandfather. Um, and those attachments are relationship-specific. They depend on the history of interactions the child has had with that caregiver. And a child may be securely attached to one caregiver, but insecurely attached to another. Anyways, um, we approached uh, someone who became our PhD supervisor at the time, 86, 87, and that is Peter Fonagy who was a um, newly appointed lecturer at University College London. And when we told him we were interested in attachment, Peter said, oh, go to the Tavistock Clinic. John Bowlby keeps an office there. Reach out to him. And Miriam did. And then I joined her in those meetings. And over the years between um, 87, 88, 89, 90, we met with John Bowlby probably every six weeks to tell him about the research. And he was a mentor and a supervisor. We got to know his family in London. And I'm still in touch with um, some members of that family. And uh, it's one of the great fortunes of my life that I did have a personal relationship with him. That's just amazing. It's just an incredible, incredible story. We should let listeners know, just for a little context, that Bulby was born in 1907 and, 
and died in 1990. So this was the latter portion of his life. You, you mentioned 86, 87 to 1990. Um, so I just imagine, um, gosh, he had experienced so much and um, the wisdom of being able to sit with someone like that must have just been incredible. Um, it was um, quite quite remarkable. He was happy for the company because in um, the psychoanalytic world, John Bowlby was a little bit of a uh, black sheep. He took very seriously something that Freud noticed in the 1890s, that the environment in which care is provided to children is fundamentally important for their physical and mental health. And when children are overwhelmed with information or experiences that they cannot understand, their self-development suffers. They are traumatized. And trauma, we should perhaps define as a, a gap between the demands of the situation and the resources available to deal with that situation, particularly when the situation is overwhelming, painful, shocking, surprising, the child understandably is prone to deny, this can be happening to me, mm -hmm. uh, it may, it, it, it's happening to somebody. Mm -hmm. And often what children do in that situation is to split, to, segregate the experiences and to pretend that this awful thing that's happening to me is is happening to it's happening to Karen. Mm -hmm. I'm John. Uh, John's going to be strong. Karen can deal with it. And and dissociative troubles result, um, which are the most serious of mental health troubles in that situation. So Bowlby understood that Freud understood it in the 1890s, but Freud backtracked from it because people were alarmed at his suggestion, Freud's suggestion in the 1890s, that children are subject to abuse. Mm -hmm. Freud flipped it around, as we know, in the early part of the 20th century and said that children have sexual fantasies and so on. Bowlby wouldn't have any of it. Bowlby said he follows Freud up to 1900 and not much beyond. Um, and um, Freud's, uh, Bowlby suffered for that from, he was a psychoanalyst all his life, but from the early 1960s on, he fell out with the British Psychoanalytic Society. They, they, they thought that he was paying too much attention to real world experiences. We now know, of course, in 2021, about the high prevalence of child abuse about adverse childhood experiences from the Kaiser study published in 1998, that the vulnerable years are the first 18 years of life. I mean, in the adult attachment interview, we ask, we define childhood as the first 12 years of life. And we got to remember it was developed in 1985 and, you know, by 13, 14, people are in puberty or out of puberty and becoming um, people in a full adult sense. Uh, but, but, uh, we now know today um, what Bowlby suspected, that early experience matters greatly for the physical and mental health of children. And I'll just say one other thing, in this world where we're so sensitive, appropriately sensitive at the moment to discrimination, underrepresented groups, 
the largest underrepresented group who are discriminated against the world over are children. Well, that's a really sobering statement. Yes. Well, as we look look back at, at Bowlby's life and um, we see, you know, these themes of separation, both that shaped his thinking, like in his personal life, some things that happened to him, and then uh, going into the war years and things that went on with children in terms of separation during the war years and his 44 Juvenile Thieves paper. So could you share a little bit about, you know, how his personal experiences and cultural experiences at the time were continuing to shape his thinking across his life? Sure. Um, Bowlby was born into an upper middle class British family, kind of Victorian family. Bowlby's father was the chief medical officer of the United Kingdom during the First World War. And in that role, he introduced to the British Army in the First World War the hard hat. Okay. And, and saved many British soldiers from serious head trauma as a result. Although we know how tragic the First World War was, followed by a pandemic flu that uh, is so familiar to us at the moment. Bowlby was embarrassed about being interested in psychiatry. You can imagine with a medical doctor, uh, uh, the father, he, he kind of hid the fact that he was training in psychiatry and psychoanalysis. He acknowledged boldly that his motivation came in large part from his own personal experience, that the nanny, someone named Minnie, who looked after him from infancy as the main caregiver, because his parents were involved in high society and going out in the evenings and saw him. But it was Minnie who cared for him in the first four years of his life. And then we don't know the reasons why, but she was let go or fired uh, in uh, around the time of John Bowlby's fourth birthday. And I don't think he ever saw her again. And he remarked about that painful separation, that it was painful, exerted an impact, but was not so painful as to prevent him from eventually marrying himself, having a number of children. Mm -hmm. And I think we might say establishing himself in his career and making a contribution to the world. <laughs> yes, that's very true. So what about the war years and what he was observing with children being moved to the countryside during being moved out of dangerous situations? What are some sure. of the highlights well, of that period? Um, two things I want to comment on. Uh, his experiences in the late 1920s as a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst in training and then the war, the Second World War. So in the late 20s, he observed children who were delinquent, children prone to stealing and aggressive behavior toward others at a, at a school where he was working. And he looked into their histories and home lives, and he found that they had all experienced difficult childhood encounters, separations from their mothers. He talked about maternal deprivation as a cause of those children's behavioral and emotional troubles. 
then uh, he noticed, of course, in the Second World War, that children were being evacuated to the countryside to protect them from the heavy bombing of London. And he signaled that he was concerned about these separations and that children are not happy about being away from their mothers and fathers for extended periods of time. After the war, he um, published that work that I, I told you about, the, the 44 Juvenile Thieves, yes. linking um, thievery to uh, early adverse experiences. And in the immediately after the war, he was commissioned by the World Health Organization to do a report on orphans, separated children around the world. And he remarked in his report for the World Health Organization at the beginning of that report, later published as Maternal Care and the Growth of Love, that what the uh, infant, what the baby requires for their physical and mental health is an enduring, continuous, more or less continuous relationship with mother or mother substitute, where mother and child derive an enduring sense of joy. Hmm. The crucial words are more or less continuous. He acknowledged that separations, short separations, maybe longer ones are inevitable. And the crucial consideration is, what's the quality of care before the separation? what happens during the separation, and what's the quality of care on reunion? Mm -hmm. Reunion is so important. We know now in 2021 and for many years that the well-loved child is not somebody who has a continuous relationship with a joyful caregiver from whom they're never separated. On the contrary, every day is full of disappointments, maybe moments of anger or sadness. And the crucial consideration is whether the child or adult for that matter has someone they can turn to for help. Mm -hmm. And of course, in later childhood and adulthood, hopefully we can be dependable to uh, uh, dependable for others who need us to advise them mm -hmm. how best to cope with sadness, anger, fear, distress. And the securely attached child or adult is someone for whom those disappointments, those ruptures are repaired quickly. Mm. Quick repair of rupture yes. is the best, is one of the best definitions of secure attachment. Yes. Well, also, as I think about um, Bowlby's work and life, I think of film and you know in my mind i'm i'm imagining this man trying to do find every angle possible through you know standardized research protocols and you know writing articles and and trying to find a way to convince people of of the validity of what he was saying and i know film became part of that so um obviously the the robertson films come to mind but there's other pieces that i i know you've written about the history of film and attachment theory so i'd, I'd love to hear any of your comments about across his lifespan his use of film to support what he was saying sure um I should be clear about this. Um, what I've written about is the use of video film feedback 
Okay. To help people change. Yes, very uh, There's, there's yeah. nothing like seeing our own selves yeah. video. Yes. And recognizing ways in which we perhaps are proud of what we're doing, but other ways in which we perhaps are ashamed or would wish to do things differently. And film is very powerful. There was a 1964 issue of a psychiatry journal which said video film represents for psychiatry and psychology the kind of revolution that the microscope microscope provided for biology. And that, I think, has been confirmed in the years since 1964. Yeah. Bowlby utilized um, his close relationship with Jimmy Robertson in the 1950s, as you allude to, in order to collect film of toddlers and infants going to hospital. And there were there's lots of reasons why children have to go to hospital in order for ailments to be addressed. Or it was common in London in the 1950s when a woman was pregnant with a second child for her to convalesce with the newborn child. Sometimes the firstborn child was sent to some kind of residential nursery. And um, Jimmy Robertson was uh, trained as a, a boiler man. He knew how to put coal in the, in the fire. He worked at the Anna Freud Center, previously called the Hampstead um, War Nurseries in the 1940s. And he um, was introduced to psychodynamic thinking and observation. He connected with John Bowlby and they hatched a plan for him to film a series of children who are sent away to residential settings or hospital. And those were very powerful films demonstrating the distress that children feel when they are separated from their familiar caregivers and placed in the care of unfamiliar people. Uh, they, and, and they're not happy, um, they're distressed a lot of the time. And the reunions that were observed a week later, two weeks later, are painful to watch because the children are very upset. They look away, they move away, they're reluctant to forgive after that lengthy, painful experience. And the, these films have gone some way to changing hospital policy. I mean, one of the most painful things of our current COVID-19 pandemic is not only the vast numbers of people who have died, but they've died more or less alone in isolation. Mm -hmm. And I get a chill as I say that, and that's the great distress for family who have lost loved ones in the, in the pandemic, because when somebody goes to hospital, family want to visit them. And if it's a child, one or both parents ought to have the opportunity to stay in the room or stay very nearby to the child. John Bowlby was very strong on that point. And uh, I know that when I lectured on this in 2004 at a meeting in the States, Los Angeles, and I talked about how John Bowlby changed hospital policy and no child should go to hospital without a parent. And it's thanks to him that that's not the case. There was lots of objection, a large audience. But many people said that that's not the case in the United States. 
We don't have those provisions in place in many places. So one of the messages of John Bowlby is when a child is distressed, sick, um, worried, be there for them. If they want to sleep in your bed, take them into your bed, offer them assurance. Yes. If they go to hospital, be there for them. Mm. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, another piece of um, his life, um, maybe I'm going backwards a little bit, but um, in terms of chronological order, was finding other scientists to to discuss his ideas with when he when his ideas were being rejected and it brings to mind harry harlow and i'd i'd like to hear any comments you know about that relationship sure um harry harlow of course was uh, an american um scientist who um studied uh, chimpanzees and uh, demonstrated that when a chimpanzee is separated from its mother and raised by a substitute mother, wire mother or cloth mother, inanimate wire mother delivering the, 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 the infant chimps were distressed and disturbed and suffered greatly from this uh, separation. Um, Bowlby met with, with Harlow at some point and um, was sorry for the the chimps in his experiments. I think you would find difficulty getting ethical committee approval for such experiments today. But um, John uh, Bowlby uh, respected the work and um, took a view, John Bowlby did, that attachment theory and what we've been talking about is not something that just applies to the human species, but to certainly to other mammal species chimps, there, there's hundreds of varieties of, of um, uh, chimpanzees, uh, and uh, attachment applies in those contexts as well. Bowlby knew that, um, independent of Harlow, because in the 1950s, he brought together uh, people close to him in the British context who were interested in parent-child relationships. And that included, importantly, Robert Hind, who published Animal Behavior in 1970 and also studied uh, other animals, not just the human animal, but other animals, birds, chimpanzees, others at um, Cambridge University where Robert Hind was based. And so um, John Bowlby uh, found common language with um, people like Robert Hind, who was an ethologist, someone who studied animals in their natural habitat in order to understand what are the fixed action patterns, the typical action patterns of those those animals. And um, we have a lot in common with chimpanzees and uh, as many people have now documented, starting with perhaps Harry Harlow and others, but through the present day, we, we do know um, that to be the case. Wow. Well, this is a fascinating discussion, and I'm just amazed how this information and these dates just pour out of you. It's just fantastic. Um, Listeners, please uh, come back next week as we will be also sharing um, part two of this incredible interview with Dr. Howard Steele about the life of John Bowlby. 
Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. 